0: You know, when you're thinking about telling your own story, like you may have done amazing things and accomplished amazing things, but if you stand up on stage and you tell a story about being a superhero and accomplishing amazing things, people aren't really gonna connect with that. People connect with flaws, people connect with vulnerabilities because it's sort of how we show our humanity is through, you know, what's messed up about us. That's what makes us lovable.
1: Welcome to Design Lab, I'm Bon Koo. As a physician, I have found it so hard to be vulnerable because I feel like there's a sense in my profession that we have to be perfect. Maybe that's why I was so drawn to the Nocturnist that was founded by Dr. Emily Silverman. She created this platform where healthcare workers can be vulnerable with their feelings, their struggles and anxieties, their hopes and their fears. I can really relate to the people who have been on her podcasts and her live shows I've been a huge fan of the Nocturnist and it was an incredible honor for me to chat with Emily Silverman. Emily is an academic hospitalist who works in San Francisco and she created this amazing medical storytelling community called The Nocturnist. Stories are her design medium. Her team at The Nocturnist has produced over a dozen live storytelling shows, three seasons of a podcast, and two audio diary series. I asked Emily how we can become better storytellers and to share with me how she protects her time for creativity and we talk about how we can redesign the healthcare systems that patients and physicians can be co-partners for health. You can support this podcast by subscribing on whatever platform you use to listen and give us feedback. We love those comments, they're so helpful, we appreciate it. Or if you wanna reach us, drop me a line at bonn at designlabpod.com. All right, here's my conversation with Emily Silverman. I think you're gonna like it. Emily Silverman, thanks for joining me on Design Lab.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, you're currently an academic hospitalist in San Francisco. Is that right? Right. And you're the founder of The Nocturnist, which is a San Francisco-based independent storytelling community. Can you tell us more of what that is?
0: Yes, so we started as a live show, actually. So January 2016, started to do these gatherings, which were small, you know, 40 people, and then it was 80 people, and then 150, and then 250, and then 350, and then most recently, uh right before covid in january we did a show that was over 700 people so what um, <laughs>
1: 700 people
0: yeah oh we had a show at the yerba buena center for the arts here in the city which is an amazing venue and even though that sounds like a lot of people the way that the seats are set up it still feels really intimate so started off as this live show and then started to do audio recordings of the live show and then release those audio recordings on our podcasts and so the way that worked out was it would be a live story clip followed by a conversation between me and the storyteller and we were doing this for three years you know the shows were getting bigger the podcast was getting going and then covid hit Hmm. and we did a couple of new projects, which I just think it's interesting when you get constraints, you probably know this as a designer, uh-huh. constraints can sometimes lead to some of the most powerful creativity that there is. Yeah.
1: It's like a recipe for creativity sometimes having that <laughs> constraint on there.
0: Exactly. So we had this constraint of not being able to convene in person any longer And what that ended up leading to is us putting out a call for audio diaries. And so this time, instead of, you know, having to be in the Bay Area and come and buy a ticket and, you know, get coached by our uh, story coaching team, we really just open it up to the entire world, really. Most of the stories ended up coming in from North America and United States. But we just said, you know, come home from work, turn on your phone, don't write, don't rehearse, don't prepare, and just speak what's on your mind. And so between the months of March and May, we got over 700 audio clips from over 200 healthcare workers across the nation.
1: It was called Stories from the Pandemic.
0: That series was called Stories from a Pandemic. Yep. Yes. And then over the summer, we brought in some amazing collaborators, Dr. Ashley McMullen from UCSF, Mm -hmm. Dr. Kimberly Manning from Emory. And we did a similar project. It was sort of like a diary format, but a little bit different. This time it was, we got a group of people and every week we would send a theme or a prompt and then people would send in their audio. And we did that every week for several weeks. Mm -hmm. And that series, which was hosted by Ashley was called Black Voices in Healthcare. And that's something that we're really proud of as well. And so, yeah, we, as I said, started as a live show, and then now that live shows can't happen anymore, we've gone off onto all these interesting tangents, and yeah. it's just exciting to see where things will take us.
1: I've I've listened to a lot of those podcasts and both those series, and what struck me is the honesty and vulnerability of the people who share their stories. And it's very refreshing. I haven't found anything else out there like it because I I feel like I could relate to them. They could relate to me. And there's these stories that we all intimately know working in healthcare, but they're not being told. And I was like, I know exactly how this person is feeling. That's how I feel. And some of these stories I've heard from people working in healthcare during the pandemic. So thank you so much for that.
0: Oh, thanks for saying that. That's really nice.
1: Can you tell me about the mission of the Nocturnist?
0: Sure. The mission of the Nocturnist, I think, is to help healthcare workers give themselves permission to tap into their own voice, their own creativity, their own way of expressing themselves, ideally in a way that feels true and authentic to them, and in doing so, to help transform medical culture.
1: I think it's hard for doctors to be vulnerable and open with their stories. I know I've struggled with this in my own life. A few years ago, I gave this keynote talk at a big medical conference, and then I shared a story about how I was was experiencing a little bit of a burnout. And to me, it, it was really hard for me to do that because usually there is not that freedom to share our vulnerability, share our weaknesses, but it felt just like empowering for me to do it. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, it's okay for me to feel like I was feeling burnout and say that on a national platform. Why do you think physicians in particular, we have such a hard time being honest with our vulnerability?
0: I think it has to do with, Deeply embedded cultural narratives, institutional narratives, and individual narratives. And these narratives feed each other. So if you think about it, what's the story that we all tell collectively about physicians? It's that they're, you know, brilliant. They don't make mistakes. That they can't not know. (laughs) That they don't require sleep that they can you know, push themselves beyond the edge of what is humanly possible, that they can't suffer from any sort of emotional experience because if they were to do that somehow, that would make them not cut out for the job. Mm. It's the story that physicians aren't allowed to struggle with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, suicidality. Mm. And if they admit to this, then there's the idea that they're not qualified to do the job. There's also narratives around physicians and just having ordinary illnesses. You know, what if you're a physician and you deal with Crohn's disease or rheumatoid arthritis or some other chronic condition that requires you to go for weekly appointments or monthly infusions or, you know, and the schedule is just not built to accommodate that. What if you wake up feeling sick and you have to call in and take a sick day? Physicians Mm. don't call in sick. Mm -hmm. Mostly because... There's no redundancy built into the system at all. And even when there is, there's just cultural taboos about doing so because you feel like you're um, invading into the space of another person and asking them to come in and do your work for you. So I think you know, this is the water that we're swimming in. And I think the first step to changing it is really just to name it and be like, this is the story that we're telling is this the story we want to be telling or do we want to tell a different story? And I think to tell a different story collectively, we really have to begin with ourselves.
1: So. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been practicing clinically for like 15 years and I actually don't think I ever called in sick. And for me, it's narrative of, well, if I call in sick, then I'm weak. And it's, it's terrible. Like I've gone in with fevers and deathly ill and, you're like, you're saying there's no slack in the system because if you call in sick, someone else is leaving their family to come in and work for you. And you just feel terrible for doing that. And I I, I appreciate your storytelling and bringing, bringing that out and bringing shining light into that. But the uh, beginning of the pandemic, it was really uh, stressful for me because my, friend from residency, Dr. Lorna Breen, who's a medical director at in New York City, had died by suicide. And that just really had a deep impact on her community. And she was a friend of mine during residency. She was my chief resident. And her family had started a foundation to bring light to mental health issues in the medical community. And it's... I don't know. It's frustrating to me that it's taking so long for a community to recognize this. What do you think we have to do to change that?
0: That's a great question. There's so many different levers we can pull. And some of them are systemic and some of them are cultural. I happen to be much more versed in the cultural levers because I'm all about getting people together in a room, talking, talking unearthing the truth and sort of shattering these myths. Mm. So I'm very interested in how I, as an individual can help sort of pull that cultural lever and, and make change through that. But obviously there's the lever of systems and structures and, you know, there's a lot that's been written about The stigma of mental health and people being afraid to report having mental health issues because they think it will go on their record. They think that their confidentiality will be broken and suddenly their boss will know their mental situation. They feel ashamed by that deep, deep, deep shame. And so how do we create a system where physicians are safe and protected and feel empowered to recognize when they're struggling from a mental health issue and empowered to seek help and to seek help in a way that feels full and complete and to really fill themselves up. It's the whole thing about putting the oxygen mask on for yourself before you help another person. Mm -hmm. I think for so long we've been operating, you know, with this physician workforce that's on the the thin edge of exhaustion. I'm actually impressed that that we're performing as well as we are.
1: Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) But imagine how much more beautiful and more verdant and more curious and more powerful our healing system could be if we had a group of physicians or an American healthcare workforce that actually felt healthy, you know, Mm -hmm. who actually practiced what they preached and and lived a life of health and a practice of health. So I think there's a lot of work to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, no patient wants to be taking care of a doctor who is burned out, super stressed, has lost their humanity. I feel if we take better care of ourselves, then we will provide a more beautiful experience of health for our patients. And we don't practice what we preach. In residency, I had you know working a long number of shifts in order to stay awake coming from a you know 12 13 hour shift from the hospital I was in New York City traffic for an hour and I started smoking cuz I drank too much caffeine it wasn't having an effect on me I was just immune to the effects of it and I was like well I'm going to try nicotine cuz that's going to keep me awake so I was like I started smoking during residency and I stopped thankfully. But in order to keep awake, so I wouldn't crash my car in, in on the Long Island Expressway in, in New York. And I think of my residents that work with me and, you know, we sleep deprive them. We put them through long hours and they're struggling to, in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., they're like taking turkey sandwiches from the refrigerator for patients. That's the only thing they could eat. We got to change the system. I think we need to redesign the way we do medical training, the way we care for our physicians who are, who are treating others so storytelling i see it as it's like your design medium and you're using these narratives to humanize healthcare. can you give us some tips on storytelling how to become sure. better storytellers
0: i've never heard storytelling is your design medium and i love it so thank you for that that is a gift i'm going to take that with me yay <laughs> Some tips for how to be a good storyteller. There's a lot of material out there on this topic. I think it's pretty simple though. I think first is knowing what a story is and what a story isn't. A story is something that happened, change over time. So, you know, it was a Tuesday. I woke up, I had a text message. It was my mom. You'll never Mm. guess what it said. This is what it said. I rushed to the airport. I jumped on a plane. There was a man sitting next to me. He threw up in my lap. Then I realized that this man was a, you know, and and so like just these sort of events that are strung together.
1: You just drew me in right there. I was like getting the (laughs) images. I'm like, whoa,
0: this is such a great story. (laughs) I was like, whoa, I could see that. So that's, and that's something that's really wonderful about storytelling is as a storyteller, you're really committed to capturing people's attention to, it's that feeling, you know, when you're in a room and someone is on stage and they're telling a story and they pause and there's this silence, but it's not an empty silence, it's a full silence. Like you can Mm. sort of feel every audience member just locked in. Mm. Almost like, like a magnet, you know, when all of those spinning molecules, they suddenly snap into alignment into the right direction. Like it's a very powerful, almost feels like a physical force. Mm. And uh, so first is knowing what a story is and what it isn't. And so if you're going to tell a story, things have to happen. There have to be characters, there have to be places, you know, and you can weave in description and poetry and things like that. But at the end of the day, there has to be some kind of event or events series of events Mm -hmm. and then for how to tell it well there's a lot of different design elements so if you go all the way back to aristotle you know there's this idea of the three act structure Mm -hmm. so beginning middle and end and if you keep going there's tons of different books that you can read there's um something called freytag's pyramid where you start with the status and then there's an inciting incident and then the line goes up and it's building Mm -hmm. conflict and then there's a climax and then the line goes down and then there's, you know, the the denouement and then you kind of end up on a different line. So it's Mm -hmm. a triangle or a pyramid shape. There are more circular shapes. So there's the idea of the hero's journey where you have a hero and the hero can be anyone. It can be Shrek. It can be Luke Skywalker. It can be, you know, a woman with dementia And the hero has a call to adventure they're pulled out of their environment they cross the threshold into the unknown they have an adventure they have an experience Mm -hmm. they undergo some kind of change or some kind of death and rebirth and then they cross back across the threshold into their home environment and now they're back home but they're changed they're different Mm -hmm. there's also some more unconventional storytelling ideas there's a really wonderful book called meander spiral explode Um,
1: I love that title. I'm going to get it. (laughs) Great title.
0: It's such a great book for a designer, too, because she talks about all of these conventional story structures that I just mentioned Mm -hmm. and how they're feeling a bit tired. You know, when you go to a movie and you're like, oh, this feels kind of formulaic. I know Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. So she looks to nature for alternative story structures. So she thinks about things like what about a spiral story structure where you're sort of circling around an event or a dream and never quite hitting it and at the very end? then we get to see the event unfold, Mm -hmm. which is a technique that was used in the TV show, um, Big Little Lies, Ah, where everybody's uh. sort of circling around this murder and then it's not to the very end of season one that we actually see the murder scene unfold. Mm -hmm. There's another one that's more like a honeycomb where it's sort of, you sort of have these little shapes that uh, fit together in a pattern and there isn't as much a beginning or a middle or an end or a climax. It's just more of a patchwork of different Micro stories, which maybe don't make sense on their own, but when you fit them all together as a honeycomb, then this larger pattern emerges, which is in some ways, like our stories from pandemic series, although that did have a rise and a fall a a little bit, but it was also like this tapestry of voices where each individual story clip wasn't necessarily a story in and of itself, Uh but it's really when you weave them together, you kind of get this bigger picture. So there are a lot of different ways to do it. And I think that's the fun of it is, (laughs) It's not a science, it's an art. And uh, we can look to some of these frameworks to help guide us. But really, once we are in a framework, it's all about letting go and seeing what kind of bubbles up uh, from that creative, spontaneous place.
1: I think storytelling for doctors should be a medical school class that you should teach. I mean, that is I I love that. And on your website, the Nocturnist, you have some storytelling tips on there. So if uh, those listening I would go to that. And one of those tips that I love is you say, show us your humanity. Don't be afraid to tell us about your doubts and flaws. And and for those of us that struggle to be open, how do you how would you encourage us to show us our show our humanity?
0: <laughs> well, if you just think about any book that you love or T V show that you love or movie that you love or you know, character who you love. It doesn't take a lot to realize that we usually love them for their flaws. You know, take a doctor character like Dr. Gregory House. He's this brilliant diagnostician and he always knows the answer and he's so smart. And I remember reading an interview with the creators of the show where they thought he was too perfect. We needed to give him a flaw for him to be relatable and interesting and exciting and for people to really connect with him. And so they gave him a Vicodin addiction and a limp. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, when you're thinking about telling your own story, like you may have done amazing things and accomplished amazing things, but if you stand up on stage and you tell a story about being a superhero and accomplishing amazing things, people aren't really going to connect with that. But if you get up there-
1: 100%. I don't.
0: (laughs) Yeah. People connect with flaws, people connect with vulnerabilities, because it's sort of how we show our humanity is through, you know, what's messed up about us. That's what makes us lovable.
1: Hmm. Why are there so many medical TV shows? I Do you have thoughts on that? It just seems like every major network has one. There's like a new one every season.
0: I think because hospitals are places of high drama. Anytime you're dealing with life and death, there's drama there. So, and that's true in the hospital. That's true when you're dealing with, you know, murderers and, you know, like the law and order and the kind of cop shows. So I think, and there's just inherent power dynamics there. So there's a lot of potential energy That can be harnessed in story. So, yeah, I think the public has just had a fascination with physicians and physicianhood for a long time. I think a lot of it also comes from this idea that we are the bearers of knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. this secret knowledge with our secret language and our white coats and our temples of the hospital, Mm -hmm. you know, and people kind of show up at our temple and they go through our rituals and they, are seeking some kind of knowledge or understanding that we have that they don't, which Mm -hmm. I actually think is not how healthcare should be.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: I would like to see healthcare be grounded more in a collaborative, shared decision-making way in a more community-based way and less in this, you know, ivory tower on the top of a hill Mm. where you show up and you're lost and you, you know, I think that is set up for people feeling unseen or not cared for perhaps by the medical system, which might be why they're so fascinated by these medical shows because Mm -hmm. it gives them an in into this world that they feel like they don't have access to in real life.
1: It's like patients and doctors could be co-partners in this health journey that they're experiencing. As opposed to this, top-down approach where we're going into that ivory tower, you know, on, on our knees, begging for information to get it from the doctor and then taking that. But how can we redesign the system so we could be co-designers in health?
0: I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I used to talk about how I loved studying the body and then teaching my patients about the body. And I still do. I love to you know, tear a piece of paper out of a notebook and draw you know, the digestive system or the four chambers of the heart for a patient to explain to them what we believe is going on with them. Mm-hmm. But in more recent years, I've also realized that the patient has a lot to teach me about their body mm-hmm. because I may be the expert who went to medical school, but they are the expert in their own body and often yeah. in their own disease process and disease trajectory. And often I find that they're the ones educating me And also part of being a good doctor is just meeting people where they are. Mm. People, you know, I feel like in med school, we live in this idealized bubble where it's like you have this disease and you treat it like this. And but in real life, it's much more messy. You know, you'll have somebody
1: so messy. So messy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so messy. You know, I'm just trying to think of an example, like somebody with diabetes, for example, who doesn't want to take insulin because they have certain beliefs about it. And so how do you sit down with that person and understand where they're coming from and what their story is, what their deal is? Yeah, and then meet them where they are. Because it's
1: so easy to go blame the patient and go, patient's non-compliant with their insulin regimen and mm-hmm. they're non-compliant. And then we kind of like, it's easy for us to go, okay, not my problem. It's, it's a patient compliance problem.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and then people feel abandoned and there's so much we can do, you know, in the therapeutic relationship with constraints. I mean, you can think about it as, Design constraint. So, okay, this person isn't ready for insulin right now. Mm-hmm. So, what else do we have to build with? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that ends up coming from situations around their community, their family, their belief system, their culture, also how they occur to themselves. You know, what is the story that they are telling themselves about themselves? And how mm-hmm. do you engage them in that place and do work? in that place so there's just a lot more to healing than you know potions and pills and it's a very relational and interrelational process that is grounded in story which is why you know as much as i love to do storytelling for fun and put on shows and watch tv and things like that i also think that the skills that storytellers have in the artistic and creative world are very very important in the world of healing and therapeutics.
1: So much of the art of medicine is being able to draw the story out from our patients and to be able to tell that story accurately and to be able to understand the human behind the disease. Because I think the better we can do that, the better care that we can give. And I'm curious, do you think doctors see themselves as, as storytellers?
0: I don't think they do. It's interesting, like who becomes a doctor these days? I think it's changing. I think now we're seeing a lot more diversity, you know, not just in terms of racial and ethnic diversity, and, you know, socioeconomic status, and life story, and distance traveled, and all those things. But also just diversity and skill set. For a long time, it seems like medical schools were attracting people with perfect SAT scores, perfect MCAT scores, who were really passionate about you know the biochemical processes that underlie the disease process, which is super important. You know, I don't think we should be putting anyone through medical school who doesn't understand you know the way the heart and the kidneys talk to each other and the hormonal signaling and you know how to look at endocrine patterns and how to understand heart failure and how to diurese someone and all of those basic things are really just kind of foundational pieces of knowledge for practicing medicine. But I do think that attracting people to the profession who have a little bit more of this storytelling narrative, like just a narrative sensitivity, Hmm. you know, and the ability to kind of engage with people and their healing process in that way. And with these design concepts of, okay, how am I gonna approach this Uh, How am I going to design our our relationship? Things like that, I think will be really important. And and traditionally, I don't think physicians have viewed themselves in that way. I think they have viewed themselves more in a mechanical way. And when I go around giving talks, I try to remind people that we're telling stories all the time. Anytime Mm -hmm. we take a history, we're receiving a story. Anytime we you know, repackage that and present it on rounds where we're telling that story now from our point of view. Anytime we document in the electronic health record, we're telling a story. I and mean, the things we write about our patients in the chart carry forward and they impact reality Moving forward, what kind of language do we use? How Mm. do we talk about our patients in in the chart? How do I write a good discharge summary that isn't just a mess of gibberish, but that actually gives a clear, concise narrative of what happened during this hospitalization? How do we have discharge summaries that are lean and story-based and not filled with garbage? Mm. So I think um, physicians are telling stories all the time and are absolutely storytellers. And it seems like the culture is starting to shift a little bit more in that direction, which I think is a good thing as long, as, like I said before, as we're not, you know, deprioritizing the science. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there are some aspects of the science-based education that maybe aren't as necessary as we thought. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a balance and I think everybody has their own opinion on it, but we'll
1: yeah. see. Yeah. I, you know, like you and me, so we both majored in a non-science field. You majored in history of art and architecture at Brown University. And fun fact, B.J. Miller, who's a palliative care physician that I know, that you know, I had him on for episode 10, and he majored in art history as a major. Do you think majoring in art and art history or architecture, that impact you upon your work as a physician?
0: You know... I don't think it impacted me that much. I forgot a lot of my art history, but I think the decision to major in art history came from that same place that inspired me to develop this approach and develop this storytelling program, which is really Mm. growing up with these two hemispheres of the brain as we all do, you know, and having a side of myself that was very linear, very logical, very rational and loved science, but also having another side of my brain that recognized that there are things that are difficult to understand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of the ways that the arts can kind of get in and help us understand things that otherwise we aren't able to understand. And so I think I understood that intuitively moving through my education and, I think over the course of my education, definitely started to lose the more artistic and creative side mm-hmm. and veer too strongly into that linear, logical, science-based side. And I think my decision to start the storytelling program was my <laughs> my spirit's way of, of auto-correcting. And it was almost like, you know, you took a wrong turn, so maybe you should do this now. And so that's what I'm doing now and maybe I'll overcorrect again and suddenly, you know, go back to school to get a PhD in biochemical <laughs> engineering. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and you, you started The Nocturnist in 2016 when you were a resident, one of the busiest phases of anyone's life who's a physician. And I heard you say that during training, you felt your creativity went into hibernation. And I try to give listeners a, a takeaway. And do you have any advice for listeners on how to awaken their creativity if they're in that phase where just feel stuck and their creativity is in hibernation right now?
0: Such a great question. And it's so personal and so different for different people. Mm-hmm. I think most people by the time they get to residency have some sense of what they like, you know, what turns them on, what lights them up, what makes them feel alive. And for some people that's playing guitar and for some people that's sketching and drawing. And for some people it's writing. And for some people it's playing soccer, you know, or (laughs) brewing beer or whatever it is. And it's just very difficult to keep up those sides of yourself when Residency is cannibalizing all of your mental space and all of your time. Mm. And the best advice that I can give is to come into residency with the awareness that this is going to happen and figure out how to set those boundaries and how to protect yourself. You know, really, it's like a guard dog barking, Mm. it's like fiercely protecting Mm. your space, you know, your time. And that might mean, you know, if it's 630 and you're trying to sign out and you're about to sign out your pager and then right before you do, you get a page from the nurse that says, hey, can you come to the bedside and talk to this patient's sister? It might mean saying, actually, no, I can't. I'm on my way out. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say no to this right now because tomorrow I want to show up feeling full and refreshed so that when I do talk to the sister, I'm coming at the situation with a clear head Mm. and a full heart, Mm. you know? And so learning how to set those boundaries, I think is really important and took me a long time as an intern to figure out how to do that. Because I felt like if I said no, that that made me a bad doctor. It's almost Mm. like the same idea that if you call in sick that you're weak. Yeah. So really fiercely protecting your time. And then, you know, if you have the energy trying to engage in those creative activities as much as you can outside the hospital with the understanding that it may or may not feel like it's working sometimes Mm. like you really want to go play soccer but at the end of the day really what you need is a nap Mm. and so just kind of attuning to the body and understanding what it is that you need in that moment to feel really really good and following that thread and and again this requires us to be in our bodies which I think is hard for physicians ironically. We kind of exist like from the neck up like we're so cognitive <laughs> and we are taught to suppress, you know, hunger and having to go to the bathroom and it's just like we get these signals from our bodies and we ignore them and we tell them to go away and
1: so true.
0: And to let those signals in and to learn from them and see them as gifts from your body as it communicates to you what it needs and then giving it what it needs. And that's true I think with basic biological things but also with things like exercise and creativity. And so just to know yourself as much as you can and bring that awareness to yourself would be my biggest tip. And for some people, they keep up a really robust creative practice during residency and that's great. Mm. And then there are other people for whom you know, residency there's a season for everything and residency may not be the season for your guitar playing and that's okay. You Mm -hmm. know, and you can come back to it later if that is what feels right.
1: And it gives me some hope that even this was such a busy phase in your life that you were able to pursue this creative act. And for those who are listening who aren't residents that, that it's important for us to set up these guardrails. And I'm still learning to do that in my life. Like I'm trying not to fill my day with, Endless Zoom meetings all day long when I'm not working clinically, and to try to protect that space to allow that platform for uh, creativity. And because if you don't, it's going to become cannibalized with your everyday work, emails, Zoom meetings, and you know, I, I, you know, Nocturnus is one of my favorite podcasts. I'm so impressed by what you have created it listening to these stories has just helped humanize me as a physician so thank you for that and i appreciate you being on the design lab
0: thank you so much for having me it's so fun i really appreciate it
1: i hope you enjoyed my conversation with dr emily silferman you can find the nocturnist on twitter and instagram and you are going to want to subscribe to the podcast it's so good After the interview, I'm usually joined by my producer, Rob Leglese, and we talk about a takeaway from the conversation, but last week was Thanksgiving and our schedule got screwed up, but I want to use this time to talk about the Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation. I mentioned Lorna in my conversation with Emily. She was an emergency medicine physician in New York City who died in the early days of the pandemic. She was an amazing human. I miss her so much. After Lorna died by suicide, her family started a foundation whose mission is to reduce the burnout of healthcare professionals. We need a world where seeking mental health services is not a stigma, but a sign of strength. I highly recommend this foundation. It's great. You can find them on the web at drlornabreen.org. Please support them. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. Please give feedback to the show on whatever platform you use to listen. That's your way of supporting us. I'm your host, Bon Ku. Rob Puglisi produces this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston, and our cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.